You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Uh, our speaker tonight is Dr. Gerald Bray. He's a friend of mine. He's a professor at Beeson Divinity School. I actually took his class for a Jan term class on the Trinity, which prompted us to, uh, to know to invite him for tonight. And my textbook was The Doctrine of God by Gerald Bray. It's available online if you want to buy it. I imagine he might reference it, he might not, but uh, there it is up there. Uh, and that, by way of introduction, Dr. Gerald Ray is going to be our speaker, and you're going to enjoy it. We're going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask everyone to stand, and we're going to read some scripture together, and then I'll open us in prayer. So you would stand. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. All right, let us read together. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your atoning mercy and sacrifice through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you speak to us tonight through Dr. Bray. Uh, teach us more about who you are, Father, so we may better worship you and share you with those we know and love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Go. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, I may have to sort of swivel like this to sort of catch you all but please don't feel offended if I'm not looking at you when I'm talking because my eyes just don't go that far all right um, but anyway it's lovely to be here thank you for your introduction thank you for your welcome I want to I'm coming uh, next week again and I'm talking to you about the Trinity uh, and what I'm going to do today is talk about the biblical evidence for this uh, and so on just give you some pointers in that and next week, I'm going to talk about models of the Trinity, the way that the, the doctrine has been put together. Uh, I'll also be uh, quoting from the Bible again next week. Uh, these things go together. But I just want to start with something that you might know already and build on the foundation. Uh, so take you one step at a time um, into this uh, teaching. The first thing I want to look at is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Bible of Jesus and of the uh, early church, of the New Testament church, the scriptures uh, that they uh, believed had been fulfilled uh, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and uh, that they had been empowered uh, to preach and interpret by the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the question I want to ask first is, can this doctrine of the Trinity, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, be found in the Old Testament? You often hear people nowadays talking about the three great religions of Abraham. Uh, that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all of which claim one way or another to go back to the, the heritage of Abraham in the Old Testament. And there are some people who will say, well, if that's the case, you see, if, if we're all kind of 
connected to Abraham in some way. Um, why can't we get together? You know, why, why aren't we all just one? Uh, I mean, shouldn't, you know, we just accept that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are three different ways of looking at the same thing. Now, that sounds good to some people when they talk like that. But what they're forgetting is that in that uh, mix, if you put those three together, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the odd one out is Christianity. Because as Christians, although we believe that there is only one God, and we share this belief, of course, with Jews and with Muslims to some degree, we believe in the one God in a different way. Uh, we believe that our one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a trinity of persons, and this is rejected both by Jews and by Muslims. By Jews, you might say implicitly, uh, they, they have never accepted it, and, but by Muslims explicitly, because it's actually in the Quran uh, that this is, this is wrong, that this is a heresy, uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, it's a different approach in this way. But when you look at it like this, although the claim is that we all believe in one God, we do so in a different way. Now, I'm not going to talk about Islam tonight because that's another issue. Uh, but uh, the Old Testament, of course, that we share with Jews, we have to ask ourselves, can we read this in a way uh, which reveals a Trinitarian dimension to God? And is that legitimate? You see, because obviously, of course, Jewish people don't do that. They don't read the scriptures in that way. And Christians for many centuries, one way or another, have, have answered this question in the affirmative. They've said, yes, there is evidence in the Old Testament for a doctrine of the Trinity. And what I want to say to you tonight is that that evidence is highly doubtful. I'm not going to rule it out totally, but I don't think it's something we can rely on, and I hope I can and give you some reasons why. But I'm going to cover it just so that you are aware, because you're the first thing I know some of you are going to do is go and pick up a book which will explain all this and say that's right there in the Old Testament. So I want to, to prepare you for that. What arguments do people use? Well, first of all, they say the, the name of God in the Old Testament, Elohim, is plural, which presupposes in their minds that there's more than one, you see, because it's a plural name. Now, most interpreters will say, uh, no, that's not the, the, the way you should read that. Uh, it's plural because it's a kind of plural of majesty. Uh, something like this, you see, uh, that uh, it, it's wrong to try to read more than one. And in any case, uh, even if it, there is a plurality there uh, of some kind, it's not restricted to three, because that's the other thing, you see, that you have to consider. It's not just that we believe in more than one, uh, we believe in only three. So uh, a plural, an indication of plurality by itself uh, is not evidence of the Trinity, because, of course, you could have an infinite number if you extended it. This, of course, is uh, the problem that we have with Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, uh, where God says, let us make man in our image. And there have been people over the years who've said, well, who was he talking to? You know, uh, let us make man in our image. Was he talking to himself? Uh, was he talking to the angels? Uh, was, he talk was this the Father talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, again, uh, I think you can't really read the text in that way, but some people have done, uh, including the great theologian Augustine. Uh, Augustine of Hippo was a, one of the greatest uh, Christian theologians and a very important figure in the development of the doctrine of the Trinity because he not only said that this is the Trinity speaking or the Father speaking to the other persons of the Trinity, but he said that human beings, you and I, created in the image and likeness of God, have been created in the image and likeness of the Trinity, so that we have a Trinity inside ourselves. 
That's what he said on the basis of Genesis 1. Well, as I said, I don't think you can really argue from that, again, because it's a, it's a plural of majesty. You see, it's part of the, uh, the majestic thing, and uh, nobody really, apart from him, um, has ever seriously tried to argue this particular point. But then there's the incident in Genesis chapter 18 when three men or angels appear to Abraham at the oak trees of Mamre, and Abraham addresses them in the singular. He calls them Lord in the singular, not Lords in the plural. And there was a Jewish interpreter of the Bible uh, called Philo, uh, who lived in the time of Jesus. He was not a Christian. He didn't know Jesus or anything like that. But he, uh, he was a Jewish person uh, who wrote commentaries on the, on the Bible, on the Old Testament. And Philo, funnily enough, takes this passage in Genesis 18 and says, this is evidence of a trinity in God. Uh, and this is a very curious thing to say. Why does Philo say this? Um, Philo, as I say, was not a Christian or anything like that. Uh, but he said, this is proof that there, there, there's an element of threeness uh, somewhere in God. Now, we, it's never mentioned, the New Testament never says this. It's not mentioned in the New Testament at all. Uh, and most Christian theologians will not accept this uh, as valid, uh, valid interpretation of Genesis 18. Why not? Well, because Philo got his ideas not really from the Old Testament, but from ancient Greek mathematics. Because in Greek mathematics, there were perfect numbers. One perfect number was seven. And because, uh, you see, God was perfect, Philo believed that the number seven must be found in God because seven is a perfect number. God is perfect, so God must somehow uh, have the number seven somewhere in him. Well, of course, that's an easy one. I mean, those of you who do trivial pursuit will already know the answer to that uh, because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So that's it. He's got the number seven somewhere in him. You see, he's resting on the seventh day. So Philo ticked that off, no problem. But where was he going to find the number three? Because the number three was another perfect number. So he went through Genesis uh, to find this and found it in chapter 18. Now, most people wouldn't worry about this uh, today, except uh, that in the tradition of the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greek Church, Greek Orthodox Church, um, this idea has entered into their uh, way of thinking. They call this the Old Testament Trinity. And uh, if you want to see this at work, if you go to the Greek Orthodox Church here in Birmingham, down on the UAB, you know, near UAB campus, and you go in there and you look at the front of the church, you will see uh, there's a, a sort of mosaic, uh, not a mosaic, fresco over the uh, uh, church. And there you have Abraham and Sarah uh, meeting the, the three men stroke angels. Uh, and it says that, that this, is the, this is the Holy Trinity uh, in the Old Testament, you see. So it's put there at the center of their worship even today. Uh, now, we don't accept this uh, as valid, a valid interpretation of, of the text because, of course, Abraham didn't recognize uh, a trinity in this, and it's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament or in the early church, so we, we can't accept that. It's also true, of course, that in the uh, Old Testament, aspects of God's being are sometimes used to refer to God's activities. So you'll get the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, or the spirit of the Lord breathed over the face of the waters. You see this kind of in Genesis, the moment of creation. And people will say, well, these extensions of God, you see, that are used, these, are, uh, these represent the Trinity somehow. And because, of course, Christ is the word of God, and then you have the Holy Spirit and so on. Again, uh, we don't usually accept that uh, interpretation either uh, because uh, 
where do you stop? You have the word of God, you have the spirit of God, but then you have the wisdom of God, um, you have the arm of God, the eye of God, and so on. I mean, you can just go on and on, uh, you know, using different aspects and so on to describe God in this way. So it doesn't really work. And then there's the famous text in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, uh, where it says, He created me as a beginning for his works. And in the early church, just about everybody thought uh, that what this meant was the Father created the Son in order to create the world. And so this was, was taken, it was understood uh, as, an, as, as some kind of revelation of the Trinity um, in the Old Testament. But as the people looked at this more carefully, they realized it didn't work because, of course, the Son was not created. Uh, the Son was God uh, in eternity, not a creature. And so Proverbs 8.22, which looks as if it's talking about the, the Father and the Son, actually becomes a big problem if you start trying to interpret it in that way. Well, I could go on with other Old Testament passages that were used to try to prove some kind of trinity in God. But I want to say, what I want to say to you tonight is none of these uh, things, none of these proofs, so-called, stands up to serious investigation. And what I want, I'm saying all this because it is important that it should not be so. Because the doctrine of the trinity is connected is tied to God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who talks to us about the Trinity. And I want to look at this uh, in the light of what we find in the New Testament. What does the New Testament tell us about Jesus? Uh, well, first of all, Jesus is called Lord. And he's called Lord in such a way that it can only really refer to God. You know, uh, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, says the Apostle Paul when he writes to his churches. Why does he say this? Why does he put it like this? And if you read through, you see the, the New Testament, you, you find in many cases um, that uh, the, the word Lord is used of Jesus in a way uh, that would only be appropriate if you're talking about God. You know, it would cause, if Jesus is not God, uh, this would not be the right way to do this. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus is called the Son of God. I've given you here a text, 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, but you can find this, of course, in John's Gospel also. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, thing when John is, or, or Jesus is talking uh, and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees are, are gathering around in John chapter 5 and uh, they say, well, uh, you know, who is this man? Uh, this man calls God his father, making himself equal with God. You see, uh, that to call God your father makes you his equal. And if uh, you look at it like this, um, you see, Jesus spoke of God as his father, not as his creator, um, you know, the, the word father is not synonymous with creator because Jesus was also creator. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and everything that was made was made by him and nothing that was made uh, without him. You see, without him was nothing made that was made. So it's very clear right there that the, the son uh, is also co-creator with the father. And it's brought out, you see, in this dialogue with the Pharisees, that when Jesus referred to himself as the Son, uh, and so on, this is what he meant, that he was actually declaring himself equal with the Father, of the same kind of being. You know, just as you and I, are this, we're human beings because our parents were human beings, uh, and, and if you have a child, your child is also a human being, uh, you reproduce yourself, so Father and Son... Uh, in the Trinity, the Son is equal. He's of the same nature, the same being as the Father. Then, of course, Jesus, when the disciples say to him, you know, the, the, the disciples uh, were, were pretty thick, really, you know, pretty stupid. Uh, how, how Jesus put up with them for three years, I do not know. Uh, 
But, you know, they were always going around asking silly questions after Jesus had just explained everything. I mean, when you're a teacher, you realize this. You, you can talk all day and people don't understand anything. And, um, you know, they said to Jesus, you're always talking to us about the Father. Show us the Father. Who is this Father? Show us the Father. And Jesus said, well, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You know, now, how could you say that if you weren't God? You see, what does it mean? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, you know, he's identifying himself with the Father to this degree uh, that, uh, that to see him and to know him is to meet with the Father also. You see, so this is a, a, a tremendous claim to make. But also, very important thing, um, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know that the story of the paralytic who is let down through the roof in Mark's Gospel, also in Matthew, but we'll look in Mark's Gospel, the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. There he is, you see, going down through the roof, and there's this big discussion. going. Jesus sees this happening and says, uh, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that man was going there for that reason. You know, uh, I mean, he, 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 went, he wanted to be able to walk again. Um, I don't suppose having his sins forgiven was terribly interesting as far as he was going to He probably wasn't even thinking like that. But Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And of course, this immediately causes an uproar. Uh, because the Jewish leaders who are following around, he said, who, who are you? Who, who are you to claim the power to forgive sins? You see? And uh, Jesus then says, well, just to show that I, uh, that I have this power, that I can forgive sins, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. That the miracle of healing is evidence to support the idea that uh, he has the power to forgive sins because only God can forgive sins. You see, this is the point that is being made. Now, another thing that I didn't put on the paper, but you, you can look at this, the temptations of Jesus. Temptation is something that is possible. You know, when you're tempted to do something, you're only tempted because you can do it. You know, it's a choice that you've got, and you've got to, to turn away from it. That's, the, that's what the temptation is. But if it's something you cannot do and you will never be able to do, you're not going to be tempted to do it. You know, I mean, I'm not going to be tempted, for example, to become an Olympic gold medalist. I'll just look, you know, it's not going to work, is it? And not even the Paralympics. I mean, just forget it. So, um, so that's not a temptation for me, all right, because it's not possible in my life. But look at the way Jesus was tempted. You see, Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread. Why? Well, because he could do that. You know, now some of you may have tried to make bread and ended up with a stone. You could do that. But going the other way, uh, you, you, you really can't, you know. And only the creator, only the one who made the stone in the first place, has the power to turn it into bread. You see what I mean? But the devil tempted Jesus in this way. And the, the temptations are, cur are curious in, the, in this sense because they demonstrate his divinity. They are proofs of his divinity because they are things that Jesus really could have done. And of course, how does Jesus respond to them? He responds by quoting from Deuteronomy things like, you will not tempt the Lord your God. You see? which, of course, is further evidence of his uh, claim to be God. You're not tempting me, you see, in this way. So there are many things like this in the New Testament that point in this direction. And then, of course, there's the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a more difficult uh, person uh, to uh, deal with uh, in the New Testament because the Holy Spirit doesn't come across immediately as a person. Uh, and you have the Father and you have the Son, it's clear that they belong together, you know, one way or the other. But where does the Holy Spirit fit in? 
And this has been a question, you see, people have asked over the years, like, who is the Holy Spirit? How does he fit into the Trinity? And there are some people who will say, well, the Holy Spirit is the brother of, the, of Jesus. You know, the, but that doesn't, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. You know, uh, he, they'd be twin brothers, but that's, that doesn't work. Uh, there's no indication of that. Then there are people who say, because the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, is feminine, uh, on this basis they say that the Holy Spirit is the mother, the female principle in God. You see? But there's really no evidence for that either. Um, uh, that the female principle, when it comes uh, in, the, in the New Testament, usually refers to the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, you know, we are the female principle, if you like, uh, not uh, the Holy Spirit. You can't really uh, personify him in that way. And then uh, you get things like when Paul greets churches, uh, as I've already said, it's usually grace and peace be unto you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He seldom, if ever, mentions the Holy Spirit. And so there are people who will say, well, he believed in God the Father, he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son, but he really didn't think of the Holy Spirit as their equal. And so some people say because the Holy Spirit is left out, uh, in that kind of um, uh, thing, or in, indeed, you know, in John chapter 1, uh, about the creation of the world, the, 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 the Father is mentioned, the Son is mentioned, but the Holy Spirit isn't, uh, is just not mentioned. People say, well, that's because they didn't think that the Holy Spirit was a third person in that way. It's complicated, of course, by the fact that in the Greek language, the word for spirit, which is pneuma, is neuter, uh, and so occasionally you get this uh, grammatical pr problem uh, coming up and, and the Holy Spirit is referred to as an it. And of course the Holy Spirit is not an it. Uh, he is a he, uh, or well a she perhaps, but I mean he's definitely a person, not, uh, not a thing uh, to be talked about that way. So some people argue from this, uh, you see the, gr the grammar, the grammatical thing, uh, that um, uh, the Holy Spirit is not personal in the same way that the Father and the Son are. But set aside from that, the other evidence that you have to look at, Jesus in John chapter 16, when he talks to his disciples and says, I have to go away, it's good for you that I should go away, because when I go away, I will send to you another comforter. And he uses this word comforter, paraclete, if you use the Greek word. Um, and this is an interesting thing because Jesus is basically saying he's the comforter. You know, he's, he's the one who's come to bring comfort to the people. But when he goes away, he's going to send another one. You know, so someone like him who will do even greater things than he has done. He says this. Now, if the Holy Spirit is a, is a lesser being than Jesus... How can he be another, how can he take the place of Jesus? How would he do things that were greater than Jesus? He couldn't, you see. He must have the, the capacity to, to take the place of Jesus and to do uh, things that are at least as great as what Jesus has done, if not greater. Well, they were greater because this is what Jesus promised. So this is um, uh, something that has to be taken into consideration. Then, of course, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Scriptures. Uh, in 2 Peter 1.21, you see, the Holy Spirit is the one who does this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Well, if 2 Peter 1.21 says the Scripture is, inspire, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then 2 Timothy 3.16 says the, Holy Spirit, the Scripture is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit must be God because he's the one who has inspired the scriptures. Uh, he is the one uh, who, uh, who spoke through the prophets, uh, you see, and who, of course, spoke through the apostles to give us the New Testament. So the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of God, and it's through that work that we come to understand who he is. Well, these are the individual persons, the Son and the Holy Spirit, taken as individuals, what evidence is there in the New Testament for the three acting together, you see, as a trinity? Well, one uh, important uh, element is the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized by John, 
what happens, you see, uh, of course, John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because John says, you don't need it. You know, I, you should be baptizing me. I mean, not the other way around because he recognizes that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he says this when he sees Jesus coming. But Jesus insists, you see, forces himself on John and says, yes, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And when he does this, the heavens open. There's a voice which comes down. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the dove comes down and settles on him. And this is the symbol of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit. So you get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit combined, working together in the baptism of Jesus. And the connection with baptism is very important because this is one of the few places in the New Testament where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together. And that is in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 when Jesus, as he is about to ascend into heaven, says to his disciples, go and preach to the nations uh, and so on, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And why would he say this? You see, why would he put these three together? Why does he say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and not say Father, Son, and Virgin Mary, for example? You know, uh, or something like that. No, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because they are together, they are equal, and this is the point of entry. This is the point of initiation, the point of commitment, the point of integration into the body of Christ through baptism. And if you didn't baptize in the name of the Trinity, there was a problem. Because look at Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, for some reason, somebody went to Samaria and they baptized in the name of Jesus only. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard this, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit wasn't part of this, wasn't there. They went to Samaria and laid hands on these people so that they would receive the Holy Spirit because they weren't properly baptized. You know, they hadn't been baptized in the name of the Trinity. So if you leave the Holy Spirit out of baptism, you aren't properly baptized. Well, who is the Holy Spirit? How, why is the Holy Spirit on the same level as the Father and the Son? Because he is equal with them in the fellowship of the Godhead. That's the, the explanation for that. Then look at the last verse of, of 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Again, you see the three persons of the Trinity at work. You see, the, the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he comes first. The love of God, this is the love of God the Father. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, John 3:16. You see how that comes together. Uh, and then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who binds us together in the love of the Father and the Son. This is all in the great grace of uh, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, signs off uh, when he's writing to the Corinthians. These two uh, texts in the New Testament are known as the direct formulas or formulae of, Trinit of Trinitarian revelation. They're very interesting, but they're not the most important evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. Uh, why not? Well, first of all, because there are only two of them. Secondly, because they occur at the end of their respective books. And, and there's always people who will tell you, well, they were added later. You know, they're not part of the original document. They were added later by people who, tried, who wanted to find evidence of the Trinity. Well, I don't personally believe that, but, you know, there are people who will argue this kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not altogether clear uh, from the start what, what the answer to that is. However, there are about 30 cases in the, in the New Testament of what we call indirect formulas. And the indirect formulas, whatever you say about them, could not possibly have been added by some later person, you see, by somebody who was uh, trying to, to, re to write the, the doctrine of the Trinity into the New Testament. No. 
they are part and parcel of the argument uh, that, the, that the text is making, of the, of the statement that the, the, the text is making. Uh, and many of them belong to the very early books of the New Testament. Look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, for example. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Spirit, Son, Father. This is the basis of Christian experience. If you are a Christian, God has put the Spirit of his Son into your heart so that you are enabled to pray to God as your Father. You know, when Jesus, when the disciples said to Jesus, how should we pray? Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Say, our Father. You know, this, is, this was the signature word of Jesus, Abba. Uh, you know, praying to God as your Father in this way. Very, very important thing. Uh, and then you have uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. We have access through Christ uh, in the Spirit to the Father. You see, again, Son, Spirit, Father. This is how we get to God. You see, it's because Jesus has broken down the barriers. Jesus has opened the way. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in our hearts by faith. He is the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. He gives us the power to pray to the Father. You see, it, it, this is how we live as Christians. This is fundamental. And you can read through the, 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 the New Testament and you will find many examples of that kind where the three persons are presented as working together, you see, uh, in order to make uh, your life and my life as a believer uh, real in the presence of God. Now, to tie all this together, I know I've got to end uh, in a few minutes, uh, so I just want to try and simplify this so that you, um, you understand what I'm, uh, what I'm saying. The difference, it seems to me, between the Old Testament and the New, between Judaism and Christianity, is that the Jewish experience of God is what you, we might call today, uh, they saw God on the outside. Now, this is my invention. So uh, it's a simplification, but it's a simplification so that you could, uh, you know, get some kind of understanding of, of what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, God appears almost as in a kind of box. Now, I didn't make that up. Um, and you might say, well, is that in the Bible? Well, actually it is. <coughs> but you don't notice this. And why don't you notice this? Well, you don't notice this because the translators of the Bible into English didn't use the word box. I don't know why. Maybe the word box didn't exist in the 16th century. I don't know. Um, but they took the Latin word for box, which is arca, and just turned it into an English word, which is ark. And the ark of the covenant is just that. It's the covenant box. But somehow or other, you don't want to be lugging the covenant box around. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in order to make it sound better, they say the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant, And yet, I bet you nobody really knows what the Ark of the Covenant is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you think, what's an Ark? Um, uh, and, and so on. But it is just a big box. But it wasn't just any old box, of course. Because, as you know, when you study, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God among his people. And if you touched the ark, you were a goner. There was a man who did that, you know, man Uzzah. He was trying to help it out, you know. It was being taken up to Jerusalem and the, the cart was starting to wobble uh, and so on. And he wanted to steady it up. But oh no, he, 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 when he touched the ark to steady it, he was struck dead. Because you can't do that. That's getting too close to God. You see, and, and God can protect his ark he, he, because that's where he has put his presence. His, his name is there. And then, of course, you have the tabernacle and later on the temple. And the temple is all organized in such a way that right in the middle, 
you have the holy place, the holy of holies. And there's nothing in the holy of holies except the ark. And the high priest can only go in there one time in the year, uh, once a year to make the atoning sacrifice and so on. Nobody else is allowed in. You know, and everybody else has to stand outside uh, in the courtyard which is reserved for them. I mean, the court of the priests, the court of the men, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, and so on. It's all sort of graded uh, at a distance from the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The veil in the temple was torn in two. What's the veil in the temple? The veil is the, the thing, the curtain, which separated the Holy of Holies from the people. You see, that was taken away. And as Paul says in Ephesians, we have access. Now we have access to God in Christ because of this. We can go in uh, to the presence of God. And that's the difference, you see, that Christians are people who no longer see God on the outside, but who have entered into his inner life. Now, if you want an image to sort of try to get this in your mind, think of the atom. You know, an atom is a very is is one thing, the smallest thing that can exist independently uh, in its own, and it's just there, one thing. But you and I know that if you split the atom, if you go inside the atom, there's a whole world of energy in there. You know, uh, which you would never imagine, just looking at it from the outside. And I use that as an image to say that this is kind of like how the Christians understood their experience of God. The God they worshipped is the same God as the God of the Old Testament, definitely. Same God. But whereas previously they had been held back, they'd been held on the outside, thanks to Christ, because when Christ died, the, the veil in the temple was torn in two. They can go inside into the inner life of God, where they are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, uh, says Paul in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 6. You see, this is it. We are, we are in the presence of God now in this way. So this is the difference. You see, we, have, we worship the same God, but we have a different status. We are no longer uh, servants or slaves, uh, uh, you know, uh, subject to the law, uh, but we are sons, we are children. Uh, we are we're able to go inside uh, into the presence of God. The other thing uh, that to remember is that in the Bible, what a person does, or the validity of what a person does, depends on who that person is. And in when we think about Jesus, for example, what Jesus did for us is not dependent on the greatness of the thing that he did. Because to be crucified, I mean, lots of people could be crucified. Even Jesus wasn't crucified on his own. There were two others there at the same time. But it was because of who he was. He was the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, who took our sin, your sin and my sin on himself, who paid the price for that on the cross, who died and rose again because death could not hold him. Death could not conquer him because he had done no wrong. Uh, you see, and he came back from the dead. Uh, this, uh, the, the work of Christ, the work that Jesus did, Jesus didn't earn the title of Son of God. He didn't work his way into heaven. He wasn't a man who was sort of taken up into God in this way. He was God to begin with. And it's because he was God to begin with, because he came down from heaven. The Son of Man came down from heaven, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, in order to do this because of who he was, God in human flesh. The Word became flesh in John 1.14 and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory in the flesh. We saw his glory. Uh, you see, this is, this is the presence of God among us. Uh, and we, we see him in this way. And this is why we are forced by the evidence of the New Testament when we read it uh, to say, this is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom work together within the inner life of God. And you and I are adopted. We are adopted in the Spirit 
as sons of God, children of God. You see, in other words, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, not by nature, we weren't born that way, but uh, by the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us who in, integrates us into this. And it's because of this that we can pray to the Father as Jesus did, with, that his Father is our Father. As he said to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, go and tell the disciples, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. You see, uh, we have the same Father, he by nature, you and I by adoption. And the work of adoption is the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, uh, the Holy, verse 16, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it's on that basis uh, that the doctrine of the Trinity was constructed. Right, time for questions. We have a few minutes for questions. Uh, Dr. Bray, I will give you the liberty. If you know your uh, question comes up that you're going to answer next week, you can punt to next okay. week. Or right. you can whet our yeah. appetite yeah. with right. a, a good answer there. These people look like they want their appetites whetted, so we'll allow that <laughs> tonight. Uh, any questions? I'll have one. So, oh, yes. Great. Go ahead. I was wondering if you would speak to the idea that the church adopted the um, acceptance of each part of the Trinity in progression. In other words, as the church grew, it had to figure out what it thought about each part and its role. Um, because I think that I remember that um, that as the church adopted the Trinity, like adopted each part and discovered what each part was, it was kind of... It sort of grew over the first early part of the church. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're talking about the, the progression of the development. Yes. Um, well, of course, the revelation, you see, of, of the Trinity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is there from the beginning. Um, but it's like, like a lot of things. You know, you have, you have an experience of God and you, you, you know, you're, 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 living the, you're living the experience. And then you're trying to work out what that is, because you have to explain it to other people. People start asking questions. What do you mean when you say this or you say that? And how is that possible? And so you, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and that I've actually written a book on this subject. Mm -hmm. It's called God Has Spoken. And it, you can easily buy it and read it. It's only about 1,500 pages long. So you'll get, you know, you'll get through it in no time. Um, and uh, it's got a laminated cover, so you can put a flower pot on top of it. It'd be fine. It won't sort of ruin the cover. Um, but you're right. I mean, that of course, they all started with God the Father, identifying the Father with the God of the Old Testament, basically, you know, from the New Testament. The, but then, uh, you see, questions arise there because, okay, there's obviously some connection in this way, and Jesus speaks of his Father and, and so on. But already in the New Testament, the question, is the Father the creator? Well, of course, if you're a Jewish person, you're going to say that because there's only one God. The one God is the creator. If the Father is the one God, the Father must be the creator. But then if the Father is the creator, what about what's the Son? Is the Son the, a creature? And they have to say, well, no, you know, the Son is not a creature. The Son is, is also creator. And that's in John's Gospel. That's in Colossians and so on. So how does that work? You know, uh, do you have two creators or just one creator? Well, there's only one God, so you have only one creator. But the Father is the creator. The Son is the creator. So the next question is, well, are Father and Son just two different names for the same thing? You know, like... In the morning, he calls himself the Father, and in the afternoon, he switches over and calls himself the Son. Uh, and, uh, or according to role, you know, as Creator, he's Father; as Redeemer, he's Son; as Sanctifier, he's Holy Spirit. These are just different names for this. And of course, that doesn't work either, because in John 17, for example, you know, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus is praying to his Father, 
And he said, Father, you know, I have accomplished the work that you have sent me to do. Now glorify me and with the glory which I had with you from, from, from the beginning. Well, it's quite clear that Jesus isn't talking to himself, you know. He's talking to the Father. The Father is someone else. And, um, I mean, every time the disciples ask an awkward question, Jesus just looks and says, well, I can't tell you that. Only the Father knows. Um, you know, so that he, he, he does say that the Father is a different person. Uh, it's clearly different. So, but how is he different, you see? And yet, uh, there's only one God. So you have to try to work this out. How can that be? Um, and then, of course, uh, so that's the next thing, you know, that they had to work through. Uh, and uh, who, is the, who is the Son? How is he related to the Father? And, and so on. And when that was worked out... Then, of course, what are you going to do with the Holy Spirit? That's, the, that's the, you know, who, who is he? Where does he fit? Because if the Holy Spirit is, is lower down, you know, if the Father and the Son are equal on the, the same level, and the Holy Spirit is somewhere lower down, is the Holy Spirit a creature? You know, did, did God make the Holy Spirit? Well, no. There's no evidence for that. If the Holy Spirit inspires the Bible inspires the scriptures and that that's the that's divine it's god doing that well how can the holy spirit do the work of god if he's not god you know i just said to you they can't do that you know the 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 work can only be the work of god can only be done by god uh, and so you 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 know you have this the holy spirit dwells in our hearts by faith i mean he's our contact point with god so do i know god or not you know or, I mean, or do I just have some kind of, you know, angelic being or something um, in my life, but not really God? And and that doesn't do justice, you see, because because the presence of the Holy Spirit in my heart is the presence. Jesus says in John 14, verse 20, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Father and I will come and dwell, you, you know, in you, identifying himself and the Father with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So... It's all together, um, you know, and you can't you can't separate that. Um, and the Holy, in a way, I, I, I hate to put it like this because this is an exaggeration, but there is a sense in which, for us, the Holy Spirit is actually the most important person of the Trinity because He's our contact. He's the one who dwells in our hearts and brings the Father and the Son to us. So from our personal experiential point of view you know he's he's the one who makes our relationship with god real and and if he's not god then we don't have a relationship with god but this had to be worked out definitely uh, yeah and one you know one after the other and that's what happened it's certainly true yeah another question dr Bray, my question uh what are the most common pitfalls that we as a church use now in misunderstanding, either in our language or our communication of the, uh, of the Trinity? Because, of course, language and clarification is important because it's a very um, yeah. mysterious topic. There are some things that we, without meaning to, kind of fall into and misrepresent what we actually believe. Oh, yes. Uh, well, uh, to do with Jesus, you see... Um, if you ask, if I ask you, uh, or you go and ask your church this question, is Jesus God? A lot of people will scratch their heads and they'll puzzle over this and they'll say, well, the Father is God and Jesus somehow is connected. Jesus is the Son of God. They'll call him the Son of God. But they're not very comfortable with calling Jesus God just like that. Now, of course, you can see why, because they don't, you know, they, 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 they want to make room for the Father as well. I mean, I'm not, you know, condemning this. But this is a danger that you can fall into, because where this leads is to putting Jesus on a lower level, you know, distinguishing him from the Father, but putting him lower down, which is not what the New Testament teaches, you know, the relationship between the Father and the Son. So this is a, a danger, and it was a danger in the early church. Uh, you know, the, the, the heresies that grew up on that basis. 
So we have to watch that. Another thing that's very common is people think of the Holy Spirit as an it. I mentioned this. And, and you hear this, you hear people praying this or, or saying this. And, and we think of the Holy Spirit in terms of a power rather than as a presence, a personal presence in us. And I think this is particularly dangerous when you get into charismatic circles, um, you know, because uh, in the charismatic world, um, people tend to think of, of the Holy Spirit as, as power, really. You know, he's given a gift, like the power to speak in tongues or, you know, to do whatever. And, um, and that's how you, you measure whether, whether you're filled with the Spirit or not. You know, do you speak in tongues? Do you levitate? Do you do this and do that? Now, um, and, and then, of course, if you stop doing these things, you know, somebody prays in tongues for a while and then they stop, have they been abandoned by God? You know, has the Spirit gone away? Uh, or, or something like that, because they've always thought of the Spirit in those terms. And, and this is very dangerous, because the Holy Spirit is not just a power which God has given us or gives us, you know, in different, in different degrees. And it's a danger of that kind of theology. But you may say, well, you know, of course I'm not charismatic, you know, great, all right. But you could fall into this trap in a different way because um, a lot of people have what I call the vending machine approach to God, you know. Um, and that is to say, uh, you, you pray for something and you, it's like kind of you put your money in the slot, you know, and then you push D3 or something because that's what you want. And if the thing which is in D3 comes down to the bottom and you pull it out, God has answered your prayer. That's fine. But you and I know with our experience of vending machines, that doesn't always happen, you know. And, and if, if the mechanism doesn't work, what do you do? Well, first of all, you shake the machine, you know. And then if it doesn't work, you kick the machine. And then if it doesn't work, you curse the machine and swear you're never going to go anywhere near that machine ever again, you know. And a lot of people treat God like that. They say, well, I prayed to God, you know, I prayed to God that my mother would live. My mother died. I mean, she was 93, but still, she died. And uh, my prayer wasn't answered, you know. And, and I cursed God, and I kicked God, and I screamed at God, and I did all these things. There is no God. I'm never going to go anywhere near this ever again, you know. And how do you deal with someone like this? But you have to go back to the beginning and say, look, your whole approach from the start was wrong. Because you are treating God as a thing, you know, that, or, or, or as, a, as your servant, rather than the other way around. <laughs> you, you know, God is okay as long as he does what you want him to do. And if, and if he stops doing what you want him to do or doesn't do what you want him to do, that's, you know, tough on him. And this is entirely the wrong way to think. But an awful lot of people do think this, and you'll meet them. You, I'm sure many of you know people like this, you know, who are very hard, very hardened against the gospel because they've done this, and it hasn't worked. And how do you get through to them? How do you, how, where do you begin? So that's something we have to, have to work on with. You see that God is, our relationship with God is a, is a, is a, is a personal relationship with presence, not really power. The power comes, but the power comes because of the presence. And this is very li liberating, you see. I mean, I don't care whether people speak in tongues, whether they walk on water, whether they levitate. I mean, it doesn't really matter to me what they do. I, I'm not interested in this uh, particularly. What I'm concerned about is um, that they have a relationship with God and that they know that even if they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, they should fear no evil because God is with them, you know. And if you need to walk on water when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, God can do that for you. I'm not worried about that, <laughs> you know. But, but the important thing is the presence of God should be there first. And if God is present in your life and working in your life, then the way that's manifested could be anything. You know, uh, I mean, he's free 
to, 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 to work in you as he wishes. Whereas if you have a checklist, you know, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to show something else, you're actually limiting God, you know, and, and, and not allowing him to work in your life except in a way that suits you. So that's a danger. Dr. Bray, thank you very much for your time and your uh, presentation tonight. We're looking forward to hearing you, hear you next week as well. Thanks. Uh, at this time, uh, if you're in the choir, you're welcome to be dismissed. We're going to, in our small groups, join up. We're in groups of five to eight people, and we're going to go through the questions I mentioned, questions 1, 11, 12, and 19. We're going to gather together in 10 minutes, so you can talk through these in 10 minutes, and then we'll gather together for our closing prayer. Thank you. Well, let's, uh, we're going to close with a short prayer together, uh, so let's just read aloud. You can remain seated, uh, but we're going to read a short prayer. Uh, it is just the one screen, David? Yeah, great. All right, let us pray. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me all the world. Amen. Good to see you all. Have a great night.